Welcome to the OnScript podcast, your home for world-class conversations on scripture and theology, where you get to meet some of the best in the field. Visit us at onscript.study. Say hello on Twitter at OnScript Podcast and stop by our Facebook page at facebook.com slash OnScript. Hey, OnScript listeners, this is Matt Lynch. Welcome back to the podcast. I hope you are all doing well. Uh, before we get started, I'd like to gather questions for an upcoming Q&A episode that a few of us that host the podcast are going to be doing. So if you have questions, send them to onscriptpodcast at gmail.com or tweet them to us at onscriptpodcast and we'll consider them for an upcoming episode. Now, in this episode, Matt Bates interviews Scott McKnight about his new commentary on the book of Colossians. And we don't typically do commentaries on this podcast, but uh, if you just if you just do the same thing all the time, how are you going to grow? Now, that is something worth pondering. Okay, on to the episode. Hi, everyone. Welcome to On Script, where we seek to bring you smack dab into the middle of world-class scholarship on scripture and theology. I'm Matthew Bates, your host for this episode. My friend and one of my personal heroes, Scott McKnight, has joined us for this episode. We'll try to get you some world-class scholarship today. But if you compare the situation to a meal, Scott's the T-bone steak salad with blue cheese and the Cabernet Sauvignon, and I'm just sort of that green stuff on the side of the plate, the garnish. The garnish isn't very tasty. The garnish isn't very tasty, but the meal is somehow more palatable if it's present. I hope I can garnish whatever Scott brings us. So sticking with the meal analogy, on the menu today are Scott's two new commentaries, The Letter to Philemon and The Letter to Colossians, both published by Erdman's in the past year as part of the new international commentary on the New Testament series. Well, you've been with us once before, Scott, when you and Dennis Venema talked to us about Adam and the genome. Welcome back, Scott. Good to hear you, Matt. And uh, I think you're a T-bone steak, too. Oh, oh, well, thanks. Thanks. Did I make you hungry with that analogy? No, I'm, uh, I've had my <laughs> breakfast. Yeah, well, I didn't have mine. I'm a little, I'm, but I'm actually not hungry because that was actually literally the exact meal I ate last <laughs> night. That's you know sort of how I came up with it. It was, uh, it was like one of the best meals I've had this year. We actually made it at home, and it was phenomenal. Good for you. So, Good for um, you. Yeah, no, I'm seriously still full from it. Um, it was amazing. Yeah. Well, anyway, um, yeah, I last saw you at SBL then, and uh, you know we'd sort of agreed to get together, and uh, we were trying to uh, find a place to meet, you know, in the in the bookstall, which is always sort of interesting, you know, if one one can actually connect with one another in there. Um, and uh, so anyway, when I found you, uh, we sat down and chatted, and I just had actually gotten uh, your Philemon commentary, and the mail Erdman's had sent me a copy, and uh, and so I, I I said, you know, to you, Scott, I said, Scott, thanks so much for sending me an autographed copy of Philemon. Uh, do you remember this? <laughs> you don't remember. I'm like, I th- I'm like, thanks so much for sending me an autographed copy of Philemon, and that, and that's exactly you know when you just say, uh, uh-uh, I don't remember. This is exactly how you looked. You had this like blank look on your face whenever I said that. You're like, what are you talking about, autographed coffee, copy? And I think you're kind of like, well, maybe Erdman somehow had. I, mean, you, I think you, you just look puzzled. Uh, and so I, I went on uh, and explained that in fact uh, I had gotten an autographed copy uh, because. I had gotten your Philemon commentary in the mail and set it down on my coffee table, and my little girl uh, had come with her uh, yes, pencil. Yes. And uh, 
she'd come with her pencil and just scribbled all over the, the opening page. I mean, I put it down for like 15 minutes, you know, and I come back and the thing's already like scribbled all over. So uh, I'd gotten an autographed copy of, of, of Philemon. Well, there's, I got a story um, so, for you on that. Jimmy Dunn, when he wrote his big book, Christology in the Making, told the story that his youngest daughter, who's an actress now, Fiona, uh, had taken his manuscript and cut it up, and she said, for, snowfl- for oh. snowflakes, Daddy. Oh, no way. <laughs> yeah, that was back in the day where that was a serious problem, too. I mean, now, nowadays, I mean, we got electronic That's files, right. but I, I can't yeah. even imagine. Yes. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. Well, you know, any anything I don't like in Dunn's Christology in the making, then I can now blame on Fiona. <laughs> uh, and, and I have a few objections to a few things in Christology in the making. So, uh, although it's a tremendous book, um, <laughs> that's that's hilarious. Yeah, I actually, um, I your copy of Philemon is not the only autographed copy I have. I also um, I have a very very finely autographed copy of Richard Hayes's Echoes of Scripture and the Letters of Paul. Uh, that my son, you know, at that time when I was doing my dissertation work, I was really using Hayes heavily. And uh, he um, proceeded to scribble on about 15 pages, you know, in, uh, in Echoes. Well, they've seen so. you write in your books, and that's all it takes. <laughs> yeah, I suppose so. Uh, yeah, anyway. Um, well, what have you been up to since I last saw you then at SBL? Well, uh, the project for writing this year has been uh, a book on Romans called Reading Romans Backwards. Um, and so that, that's been, that's occupied my entire, uh, mind for most of this time. I've, I've had to write a couple small things, you know, dictionary entries and stuff like that. But, uh, no, it's, it's been Romans and teaching and family life and, uh, church life and blog life and Willow Creek stories. Yep. That's been... (laughs) Well, you certainly you certainly keep plenty busy. I used to, I know you you had a a picture up the other day on Facebook of you crossing some sort of I don't think it was the Mediterranean, it was some sort of other European sea, and, and uh, I remember feeling uh, this this pang of en- envy. Uh, so you did you did do at least some nice traveling this summer. Yeah, we, like. well, we went to um, Turkey, Greece, and Italy with a class, and I just got back from a trip to Denmark where I spoke at a church conference. Uh, so yeah, I mean, I'm a privileged person, Matt. I we get to we get to travel quite a bit. It's it's fun, but it's also a you know I rarely do we go just on vacation. Most of the time, uh, we add a couple days to the beginning or the end of of a of a ministry event. And while I'm at a ministry event, I don't relax until the last talk is done. Yeah, I, I, yeah, I know how that feels. You certainly feel like you're you have a burden on your heart and on your soul until you're done unloading That's it. That's right. right. Yes. Well, let me introduce you here then. Scott McKnight is the Julius Armanti Professor of New Testament at Northern Seminary. He has written more than fifty books and also blogs regularly on his highly influential Jesus Creed. Scott is a much sought-after conference speaker and a renowned expert on early Christianity. He has written both academic and popular titles, including the Jesus Creed, which won a Christianity Today Book of the Year Award in 2004, the Blue, Car- the Blue Parakeet, and recently Open to the Spirit. Uh, McKnight also has written many books for scholarly audiences, including a commentary on the Epistle of James in the same NICNT series, uh, and one of Scott's popular books, 
the King Jesus Gospel would be my personal favorite, been important for my scholarship uh, and my, my spirituality too. There's one fatal flaw in Scott's character, though he is a Cubs fan. It shows that he has um, something twisted in his soul. When was the last time the Giants won the World Series? <laughs> Uh, yeah, well, you know, we have 2010, 2012, and 2014, uh, so it hasn't not been too long, Scott. Yeah, but uh, we were more recent, so. <laughs> well, you know, I know I know you Cubs, Cubs fans, you know, you, you, you had that um, that long, uh, drawn-out sort of. Uh, 108 years! You know, you know, waiting that, you know, the sublimation, you know, makes the joy greater. I understand. I understand the envy you feel toward other teams. It's okay. It's okay. Um well, Scott, so commentary writing. Uh, let's talk about that a little bit. Now, commentary writing was once described to me um, by uh, another New Testament scholar as the least creative act of scholarship that a New Testament scholar can undertake. He was not a fan. Uh, why don't you react to that? What do you think about that? I think that's true uh, in many ways. Um, commentary writing is a grind of pondering Greek texts, Greek manuscripts, grammar, syntax, the interpretive history. So at all of those stages, are they're not creative. And you might be able to phrase it, express it, package it in a creative way, but it's, it's carrying on a tradition. I, I, I love the, um, the, the uh, significance of commentaries for pastors, for churches, for students, for Bible readers. I think that providing people with guidance on how to read the Bible is a wonderful task for those especially who have a high view of Scripture, as I do, that, and I know you do, that this is the Word of God and we get to interpret it and read it and, and understand what God has to say. Um, having said that, it is also, um, it, it, is, it is not creative. You're not going to create your own ideas. You might be able to put a passage together in a way that has not been put together before um, in, in, a, in that creative way. But that's, that's about the level of creativity. And the commentaries that I've read in my life that were the most creative uh, have, for me, been the least useful. Uh, I mean, sometimes the creativity, you go, wow, that is really clever, but there's not a chance that that's right. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah, the task yeah. is faithfulness and commentary yeah, writing more than right. creative. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, but I, I think that uh, undoubtedly everyone who is a pastor or a scholar agrees that commentaries are the foundation, right? It's where scholarship is brought together. It's also the, the chief resource that a pastor is going to go to in pre preparing a sermon. At least we all hope they go there. <laughs> sometimes sometimes you wonder when you listen to the sermon if they did go there. Uh, but we do hope that they are informed by the by the best commentaries. And the NICNT series in particular has is, is actually always been my favorite. I, I actually first cut my teeth as a biblical scholar and terms of just beginning to get interested in the subject uh, by reading Bible commentaries. I had read a little book by Gordon Fee and Douglas Stewart, How to Read the Bible for All It's Worth, and uh, that, that sort of just got me interested in, in, in sort of more academic approaches to the Bible. And, I, I, you know, Gordon Fee I, was interesting to me, his voice, you know, in, in that How to Read the Bible for All It's Worth book. Uh, and so I, I, I looked him up and saw that he'd written some commentaries. I ordered his first Corinthians commentary and I just started reading it. Uh, and then uh, read, it, read Douglas Moo's Romans commentary, and uh, and that really got me hooked and helped me see like, ah, wow, there's something interesting here, and I better learn Greek. So <laughs> then I started working on Greek. That's good. Uh, That's good. Yeah, I started yeah. by reading William Hendrickson, 
Um, oh, really? Way back, uh-huh. I read Galatians way back when I was in high school. But Gordon, Gordon uh, wrote his commentary to be read. And a lot of commentaries aren't meant to be read. Uh, they're, they're meant to be consulted. So I, I think Gordon did us a wonderful service when he wrote 1 Corinthians. He was a he was a terrific terrific commentary writer and a, just a terrific man in general. I was uh, so impressed with him as a as a scholar. I had the privilege of studying under him at Regent College. Um, but anyway, uh, your commentary is I think uh, if I was to say uh, one of the things I think is terrific about it is really up to date. Sometimes you get a commentary and it feels like the thing's stillborn before you even got there. Like the scholarship's all ten years old and. Uh, you know, it's a, a long time in making and a long time in press. Uh, but uh, when I was reading yours, I was like, wow, this is right right up to date. I mean, you have a lot of references to N.T. Wright's Paul and the Faithfulness of God. You, you managed to in- integrate John Barclay's Paul and the Gift, even though it wasn't even out yet. Uh, as you've gotten an advanced copy, you got Douglas Campbell uh, in there and uh, Mike Gorman featured prominently. Uh, and so, and you don't, you're not afraid to take an independent stance without it being uh, over, overly creative in destructive ways. So it's a good. It's they're solid commentary. You know the thing. Good. The thing about it, Matt, is there are so many pieces of scholarship written. It is uh, when you say it's out of. It's not out of date. Uh, I felt like almost every passage I wrote on in Colossians and Philemon. Philemon, not so much, but Colossians. I thought, oh man, there's all kinds of things that I could have read that I didn't. Uh, and it just it's endless uh the task of reading on paul so uh i tried to i i tried to uh stay as up to date as possible yeah well i think you you did a good job with that for sure um yeah and so i mean one of the questions i have um, i have a couple questions about you know your process of commentary writing and so on and so forth but one of them is um partly given that you have a wider platform right um that you can write popular books because A, you're good at it, and B, you actually have a platform to do it, and not all biblical scholars do. Um, what what motivates you then to um, to kind of come back to this like really heavy hitting, uh, you know, it's a grind, like you said, of commentary writing. Um, why do it, I guess, given um, you have other opportunities that you could, could use? Well, uh, I think it's the uh, Colossians commentary where I start out with something from Bonhoeffer on this. But I, I think that this is the Word of God, that we have a responsibility to study it and to articulate it for our contexts. And our contexts are always shifting, uh, updating, changing, rearranging, reconfiguring. And so I believe that um, if we are given the opportunity, not all of us get these opportunities, and many people who are given the opportunities to write commentaries, it either grinds them under or it takes them three decades. Bob Jewett took 27 years to work on Romans. Um, And that can be, there aren't very many people who can work on a single project that many years. Um, So uh, I do it because I love to study the Bible and I love to work through these texts. It keeps me grounded. Um, it, it forces me always to reshift, re-examine what I believe, change my mind on, on some topics. I do think that there are too many commentaries written that don't need to be written because all they're doing is repeating the obvious. Uh, I do think that there needs to be um, 
some kind of reason for that person to write that commentary. And uh, I found I found it difficult with Colossians. I, I don't think that I found um, a new angle that no one had explored. I, I saw commentaries. I thought this is really a good commentary, and I'm re-expressing in some ways. Uh, I did focus a little bit on redefining that the opponents of Colossians. On Philemon, I do think I had a pretty distinct angle on slavery and modern slavery and the and and how Philemon is actually addressing that topic. Oh, but good. You're, you're, yeah. that's a good lead into where we're going to go. Yeah. So, you know, yeah. I, I am uh, uh, excited to, to delve into that a little bit more as I do think you had some new things to say. Um, kind of circling back then in, in terms of um, do you have a philosophy of commentary writing, um, a, a certain strategy that you undertake in order to make it as good as possible? Man, I think the most important thing to do is to figure out who you're writing that commentary for. And that is, to me, that's the philosophy and strategy. I learned this in part from Gordon Fee. Some people, I think, write commentaries for themselves. And that's fine, except that they assume their readers understand everything in their head. And they, you, they usually, I, I could say, they never do. So I focus on pastors who are preaching the text. And so I don't, I don't, when I wrote Colossians and when I wrote Philemon, I wasn't thinking of uh, Edward Loza reading my commentary. Well, I'm sure he's no longer alive. I, yeah, I, I was going to say he's dead. Uh, so I'm, you know, I'm, I'm not thinking of <laughs> Peter O'Brien, who, of course, has a tragedy now connected to him. Or any of the more, you know, the the top level scholars reading it. I I didn't think about Tom Wright when I wrote it. I I thought of my pastor, and I thought to myself, this is uh, for a, for a commentary on Colossians. This is a lot to read if you're preaching twelve verses. And so I tried to be succinct and summarize points so that pastors who are preparing sermons in a lectionary or a series, and most people aren't going to preach 10 years on Colossians, I tried to keep it uh, more succinct because of that. So my philosophy is to is to write for pastors who are preaching the text. Yeah. Well, I think that's obvious in reading it, and that's that's right in line with the goal in the NICNT yeah. series yeah. as a whole. Is it's certainly trying to bring the best of scholarship, you know, in a way that uh, allows pastors to to be conversant with it and to use it as a, as a teaching tool and preaching tool. Um, well, let's, um, let's go ahead and jump over to Philemon then. Um, and uh, let's talk about that first, and then we'll, we'll hit Colossians second. So obviously a major issue in the letter is slavery. And um, one of the things I noticed in reading your commentary is that while you agree that there are differences between Greco-Roman slavery and North American slavery, uh, you think it's very important not to overplay the differences in teaching this material today. And I think that you, you're you troubled by um, maybe people who want to um, say that, oh, they're just very, very different. Um, well, what are some of the most crucial differences and then some of the similarities and why do we need to be careful not to overplay? So let's let's start there then. What are, what do you, what are some of the most critical differences to appreciate between um, ancient slavery and, and, you know, it's North American expression that, that is on a lot of people's minds? Um, I, I, I think I want to begin by saying that one of the reasons people like to say that New World slavery 
and ancient Roman slavery or Greek slavery are different is so they can protect the Bible from saying things they'd rather it not say. Uh, that concerned me. And I will tell you, admittedly, that way back in the early 90s, when I worked on First Peter and wrote a commentary on that, I pretty much adopted that theory, that New World slavery and ancient slavery were not the same. Therefore, what the Bible says about slavery uh, is not really... Uh, parallel to to New World slavery, and therefore the Bible gets off the hook. Uh, my own research on slavery uh, at that time was based on uh, a scholar in California who had done really good work on slavery for the time, Scott Barchi. Uh, but slavery uh, scholarship has changed dramatically since those days, and I had to, I had to change my mind. And so... I would say that, you know, there are differences. Um, the, the differences are degree rather than kind, uh, because a slave is a slave is a slave. And by that, I mean a slave is someone who is owned by another human being for the sake of financial profit and exploitation. The degree of profit and exploitation changes on the basis of the character of the slave owner and the character of the slave in some ways who can negotiate. But by and large, a slave is someone who's owned, and that's the same in the New World slavery as it was in Roman slavery. And there's really nothing that I know about New World slavery and its exploitations that are that substantially different than first century slavery, except for this major difference, which doesn't occur until the 6th, 7th, and 8th centuries A.D., and that is New World slavery is based on, let's say, race or the color of skin connected to, to Central Africa. That was not the case in the first century. You could not walk down the street and infer from a person's color their status in the Roman Empire. Uh, in, the, in New World America, you could. Uh, so. Yeah. So the yeah, in the Greco-Roman world, they had their, their preference for um, certain races as slave races, I suppose, but that was mainly because they had been taken captive. captive. Yeah, that's right. Um, yeah. And uh, that, that there, there might be a, a preference from slaves from the east versus from you know the north or from whatever with respect to the empire, uh, but it, it wasn't inherently race-based in that sort of way. Yeah. Um, well, I wanted to read um, just to, to kind of give um, you know listeners a flavor uh, of what slavery was like um, in uh, the ancient world. World, uh, from a source book on um, uh, on Roman um, sort of social uh, political life, uh, the, the source book is an excellent one by Joanne Shelton called "As the Romans Did," uh, but she illustrates um, uh, slavery um, from uh, Juvenal and his satires, uh, and Juvenal is sort of speaking to the sex, some of the sexual exploitation uh, that takes place, especially because. Uh, slaves as they were property were sexual property too. Uh, and uh, uh, this could be the effect, he says, of, of what might happen uh, to a female slave uh, who is giving sexual favors to uh, her master. Uh, here's what Juvenal says. If her husband turns his back on her in bed at night, his secretary suffers. Some women hire a torturer on a yearly salary. He whips while she puts on her makeup, talks to her friends and examines the gold thread on an embroidered dress. He lashes while she looks over the columns of the account book. He lashes and is exhausted by lashing until she bellows out, go away. 
Poor Pescus, whose own hair has been torn out by her mistress, and whose clothing has been ripped from her shoulders and breasts by her mistress, combs and styles her mistress's hair. Why is this curl so high? Uh, the mistress screams, and at once a whipping punishes Pescus for this crime of the curling iron and sin of a hairstyle. Um, so, you know, that example sort of speaks to the exploitive nature of, uh, of ancient um, slavery and its sexual dimensions as we have this example of, you know, a, a, a woman who's the mistress of the house who's jealous over the, the relationship that the, the master has with the slave. And so she hires out to have her slave whipped. Uh, and meanwhile, her slave has to still tend for her, right, and still has to curl, curl her hair. And she can scream about how inappropriate the hair, the hair is, you know, uh, just as an excuse to whip her more. So um, anyway, part of the reason I wanted to, to, um, to, uh, to read that was a way of, um, you know, kind of making this real as to the, the truly exploitative nature of ancient slavery, right? It wasn't something that is um, uh, 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 something that was okay back then, but, you know, um, but changed somehow in North American context or something like that. Well, Columnella um, uh, wrote an ancient textbook on how to manage your slaves, and uh, he re he's one who expresses a very common mentality, and that is, if you really want your slaves to be productive, you, you have to kind of uh, be pragmatic about all this and be as kind as you can uh, without being too kind. Uh, keep them working. Keep them hungry. Uh, don't give them too much, but give them a holiday. Um, Say nice things to them. Give the men a woman they can live with. Uh, so there was there was a lot of discussion about how best to treat slaves so that you could get the most out of them. And there was indeed a lot of sexual exploitation of slaves. Uh, in the case of Philemon we're looking at, we have a male slave and a male slave owner. And there are clear indications at times that... Um, Male slave owners exploited sexually their male slaves, especially when they were boys. But we don't know uh, Philemon's relationship to um, Onesimus enough to, to be able to speculate other than to say mm -hmm. that's the world in which this occurred. Yeah, yeah. Well, and so then we get to the really, you know, um, difficult question, you know, as we think about the ancient context and bridge to the modern, is that Philemon doesn't speak directly, uh, the letter to Philemon, Paul's letter, doesn't speak directly against slavery. Um, how does the letter speak to the issue of slavery as we kind of try to bring that into the modern world today? You know, Matt, this is, um, this to me is a really critical issue for those who are reading Philemon, for those who are teaching it, for those who are preaching it, for those who are believing it and wondering its value. So this, this is a question that I really pondered for a lot of my commentary. And I tried to read the text from different angles. And I came to the conclusion that Paul's strategy for Philemon was to welcome this man back which is an act of forgiveness. It's an act toward reconciliation. And he called him to accept him as a brother, no longer a slave, but a brother. Uh, this could be read as the elimination of slavery for Onesimus. It could be read as emancipation or what is often called manumission. 
Uh, but it does not appear to me to be the case. He doesn't say that. Paul is not a guy to hold back. If he told him to liberate him, wanted to, he would have. The thing that I came to the conclusion on is that Paul was did not disbelieve in slavery. There's no evidence that he was against it. If you could get your freedom, get it, 1 Corinthians 7. Uh, but in Colossians chapter four, uh, 3 and 4, at the end, when we get the household regulations in Colossians, and I believe that these two letters are written in close conjunction with one another and n- nearly the same time, if not the same time, there Paul is not advocating against slavery, but he is advocating that slaves be respectful to their masters as unto the Lord, which is a bit of a sabotage and a subversion. But the key is that masters are to treat their slaves with justice and equality. The Greek word is not fairness, but equality, isotes. And so I believe that Paul uh, continued to believe in slavery. Uh, The way I would put it is Paul was blind to the immorality or morality of slavery. He just did not think like that. That was not on his agenda. Furthermore, liberation in the first century from slavery did not lead to, for most people, to total liberation anyway. It led to what's called a Junian status, which would mean that the slave would be financially dependent upon the old master Only now the slave would be an employee rather than a slave. So it didn't change that person's life radically. This is not the 17th or the 18th century French Revolution. This is not uh, the elimination of slavery in the United States with the Civil War, which, of course, as we know, did not really end slavery completely. Um, It is rather... um, a new way of looking at Onesimus by Philemon and a new way for Philemon or, or for him to see one another as brothers in Christ. And it, it leads to me to, to an open door. And he shoves both of them through the open door and says, now figure out how to live as brothers in the old institution of master-slave. That's where I think Paul is when he writes these, uh, when he writes his letters, and that makes a big difference. Uh, we believe that slavery is immoral, so in that sense, we've progressed beyond Paul. But we've used Paul to build our theory of liberation. Furthermore, we've used the entire Bible's depiction of humans as made in the image of God, and brothers and sisters in Christ as equals. To, to take what Paul said and, and move beyond it. That, that's what I think's happened in the history of the church. Yeah, I think that's a, a really good analysis um, and a beautiful vision for um, how we can take um, this, these historically bound documents, right, um, but mobilize them still uh, throughout church history and still today for reconciliation. Um, yeah, that's, that's really terrific. Um, I, I want to go to um, j- just one, one other. I probably only have probably time for one other issue in Philemon. Um, and so this is the other, I think, real um, matter of scholarly debate right now. And that is the traditional view is that Onesimus is a runaway slave. And that's the view that you defend. Uh, but increasingly, scholars are opting for a different solution. And uh, the solution is something along the idea that he was seeking asylum, right? Uh, that, that Onesimus was seeking asylum with Paul. No, I was seeking um, an advocate. Yeah, or seeking yes, uh, seeking asylum in order to yeah to have Paul yeah, advocate yeah. on his behalf, yeah. right? You know, never and, meant um, to completely run away. 
Yes. Uh huh. If that if that's true, um, how does that change the message? And what do you think? I guess the strongest cases for your traditional view. Well, when I studied this, when I read all the evidence that they had for a slave as an uh, a runaway as a or as a slave as an arrow, that is someone who's seeking an advocate, and for the evidence of a slave being a fugitivus or a runaway, and I you know I read through all the Justinian Digest laws on slaves on this, and I just did not find, I didn't find the evidence that compelling. Uh, but I, I, I have to admit, there, there, are, there were days when I was working on Philemon where I said, yeah, I, uh, maybe that's the best way to look at it. And, and so here's a commentary in which I wrote uh, that he was a fugitive, uh, a runaway, um, but I would say I was 60-40 on this. I was not 90-10. Uh, and if someone wants to argue their, that case, I, I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time fighting against that because I think it's a you can read the letter that way. And, and the best evidence for it is that somehow Onesimus ended up in uh, prison or some, some, uh, in captivity with Paul and it would be very unlikely that a slave would end up with a citizen. Uh, that, that's not common. So you could say, well, he was actually seeking out Paul. And that would be the arrow interpretation. Um, I don't think the ending of the letter, uh, I don't think the tone of the letter is uh, advocacy for Onesimus so much as reconciliation. I mean, he doesn't, you know, he, he doesn't critique Philemon for anything he's done. He doesn't, you know, he doesn't defend Onesimus like, like, like saying, he's actually a really good guy and you've misunderstood him. He's made a couple mistakes and I want you to, we, we don't have that, although we do have um, the suggestion that he stole money and uh, because, you know, if, he's, if you've incurred any debt, I'll pay you back. That right there is evidence probably for a runaway rather than an arrow. Uh, so, you know, what I'm trying to do is illustrate the back and forth that you have to go through to come to this conclusion. I don't think it makes that much difference uh, in the, inter yeah. the final interpretation. Hmm. Yeah, one of the things I've been just sort of toying with, this is an idea I've toyed with for a while, would be um, maybe the idea um, of uh, Onesimus as sort of a lingerer uh, that he's been sent maybe even by Philemon, let's say, to go take care of Paul's needs. And then he dilly-dallies you know, while he's there, partly because Paul compels him to stay. And uh, he, Paul finds him useful. Paul wants, wants him to run errands and, and do this and that because Paul's in prison and maybe Onesimus is not. And that this is sort of uh, possibly a letter then that uh, would be dispatched back saying, here's why he's dilly-dallied. And if he's incurred any debt in so doing, don't punish him, right? But instead, you've got to welcome as a, him as a brother. And this could maybe make sense of why then Onesimus would be um, an emissary that's sent forth um, uh, with uh, the letter for Colossians, right? As we see, he's somebody who's dispatched with the letter, right? That um, that uh, that if he was in some sort of ill state of grace with his master, that wouldn't make sense. But if he was a slave uh, that was used as a courier, 
um, and uh, that he had maybe dilly-dallied uh, and, and uh, assisted Paul in some way. That can make sense of the letter. Now, I don't know that that probably fits somehow with the, with the idea of him, you know, seeking an advocate with Paul or, or, or something like that. But I don't, I don't know if I've seen anyone defend that specific view I'm suggesting. It's one that I've just sort of toyed around uh, with myself. But, um, yeah. It, yeah, you'd have to, you know, you got him, you got him getting converted uh, that's an interesting dimension. It, it makes the sending less likely in the sense that if he's a if he's a brother already, uh, if he is being sent to do something in the Christian ministry, I'd say no. He could be running an errand. I don't know what that would be. That's not mentioned. So I'm I think runaway is a reasonable hypothesis. I don't think it's absolutely certain. I don't think uh, uh, an advocate theory, the arrow theory, is absolutely certain. Although I agree that there's a lot of people flipping in that direction today. Sometimes I think people flip because it's something new, uh, you know, and they could say now all the, the recent scholarship is has all gone this way. One of my editors told me, "Don't ever use the word consensus. Don't ever use the say recent uh, uh, scholarship." He says that's just lazy. So, so I, I just, when I examined the evidence, I just didn't find the, um, I didn't find, and, and Arrow as evidence is pretty late to begin with, so. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, I think certainly the, 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 the position you defend is ably defended and has certainly been the traditional view, and probably rightly so. Well, how about we go to a speed round from there, uh, and then we'll move from there to Colossians. So the speed round, you didn't actually do one last time uh, you were on on script. That's something we've added, I think, since then. But the idea is that you don't really get to defend your view. You just tell us what you think, and uh, it's... Uh, you know, it's the, the you don't get a long time to think about it. Just kind of quick, uh, off the cuff responses uh, to this to these questions. Okay, Are you ready? Yep. All right. What's a trend in society that scares you? <laughs> uh, centralization. All right. Say belief that all our solutions are in Washington D.C. Okay. You walk up to the bartender and you order what? IPA. An IPA. Not bad. It's summer. Uh, keeping it light. That's good. All right. Uh, what's the most important theology or biblical studies book of the last 50 years? Oh, last 50. Okay. Still within 50 is E.P. Sanders, Paul and Palestinian Judaism. Yeah. And the, ne uh, the next one for me would be John Barclay's Paul and the Gift. Yeah, those are very common answers uh, to people who have done this question. Both of those are. Um, what's something you find embarrassing? Um, the Willow Creek's handling of the sexual inappropriateness of their pastor. Do you believe in ghosts? <laughs> uh, evil spirits, yes. Is there intelligent alien life elsewhere in the universe? I have no idea. <laughs> Come on, you're not even going to speculate. I don't even think about that kind of thing. 
So. Yeah, you don't think about it. Okay. All right. Good, good answers, though. Good answers. Okay. We'll do another one later. Uh, but let's, let's go ahead and jump over to Colossians and make sure we don't neglect that uh, entirely. Uh, what I'm going to do here is I'm going to read just a little bit from your commentary uh, and uh, pages two and three uh, as a way of sort of summarizing the approach you take and uh, helping people to kind of get where you're going uh, with your whole commentary. Uh, so here I'm reading um, from page two. About the letter to Colossians, it was not read privately, but, and this is our point, was read publicly, and a public reading of the things said in Colossians is a forthright social, economic, and political announcement that King Jesus rules the cosmos. The letter claims that Jesus is the originator and telos of the creation, as well as of all political orders, including, yes, Rome's. In four relatively brief chapters, then, we get a worldview not one in all its fullness and particulars, but a worldview nonetheless. This vision, as we've already indicated, begins and ends with King Jesus. Paul's Christotheological message of Colossians can be reduced to, God has conquered the powers, delivered all humans from sin and its powers, and reconciled the entire cosmos to himself in, through, and under Christ. It's a powerful statement. Um, and, you know, one of the things I notice in your approach to the commentary is that you don't really front the traditional Pauline categories uh, that dominate conversations, especially of salvation theory or soteriology, um, categories like justification and sanctification and trying to figure out how salvation works. Uh, instead, you begin with Christ, and there's kind of a Christocentric um, dimension to what you're doing, and you're trying to say, how does the reading of Colossians change when we make Jesus the cosmic king? the theological starting point instead. How does it change when we make Jesus the king, the theological starting place? Uh, Matt, what I have found over the years is that um, this sort of starting point versus a, let's say, a soteriological starting point uh, reconfigures information. It doesn't say that everything else was wrong, but it, it shifts the order. And you know, and I know you agree on this in some ways, uh, with the gospel stuff that I did with King Jesus, that when you say the gospel is about Jesus, it's an announcement about Jesus. It is not first a declaration that you're a sinner and you need to be saved. It's not that that second part, uh, you're a sinner and need to be saved, is, uh, is untrue. It is rather that it gets reconfigured under a category that the story is about Jesus, and as such, he is our Savior. Okay, so, if if Colossians is not so much about soteriology, but Christology, then it just reorders and reconfigures the information that we probably already believed and knew. So, uh, uh, I, I, I want to say it's reconfiguring. It's reimagining the same from a different angle. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, it really fronts that like Jesus is the cosmic king who has come to rescue us, right? The idea that yeah. he takes on human flesh uh, where sin is dealt with in, in Adamic flesh, right? Uh, and uh, that in so doing, he's um, he's defeated something that was part of our order, right? That the Stoicheia in Colossians uh, uh, were using somehow or another, right? Um, that or that was a, a, a bridge through which sin could enter. 
um, and that uh, after that defeat then of the Stoikea's um, enslaving power, right, in our Adamic ontology, um, well then we're set free and we're liberated and, um, and that the Holy Spirit can begin to colonize us and uh, take us over. Um, so yeah, I, I think that it does reconfigure and um, it, it kind of paints things with a cosmic, um, a cosmic brush. You know, and so, so I think we see slightly different angles on old lines. Wives, be subject to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. The Christological reading of Colossians, or a Christological starting point, says this is how you live in the Lord, and this is how wives live in the Lord. That's a slightly different than this is the behavior, the ethical uh, performance expected of a woman. It, it changes, it just slightly shifts it into a different direction. And, it, and then when you read the household regulations in 3 and 4, you see this, uh, you, you draw out those Christological implications. And I think it, the Christ is Lord and cosmic king uh, shifts our perception and we reconfigure our readings. Mm. That's great. And obviously some of the, the, the way that you read the, the letter in a, in a sort of a Christological, uh, uh, Christological way with Christology fronted um, relates also to the identification of the Colossian heresy uh, and questions surrounding Paul's opponents and what he's dealing with there. Uh, scholarship has been moving. Um, there's been a lot of different opinions about this down through the ages, and it seems like scholarship has been moving toward a consensus that I, I would say it's fair to say that you that you are moving in that same direction too. At least that was my sense. Um, and uh, yeah, do you want to go ahead and elaborate on um, what was what is the Colossians or what has traditionally been called the Colossians heresy? Although I don't think that's the best term for it. Um, and what was Paul up to then in combating it? Um, you know, the uh, I I've always been a huge fan of um, uh, Morna Hooker, and when Morna Hooker says there are no opponents, I stand back and listen. But but I have to say on this one. Um, I, I came to a conclusion that I think the best way to describe them is that they are halakhic mystics. Uh, and that's, that's my redu uh, reduced uh, formula for seeing them as uh, probably Jews um, rooted in a way of reading Scripture, uh, a way of observing Torah, a way of teaching this otherwise uh, to others. And, you know, sometimes we want to say all the opponents of Paul in all his letters are so different that they're not the same. I, I have to admit uh, that I tend to, I tend to think that what's going on at Galatia and what's going on at Rome, uh, not so much at Corinth, but, and what's going on at Colossae are not as different as people would like to make them. Yes, there are differences. So, I think that, but I do believe that this group got connected somehow to a form of Judaism uh, that also led toward mystical experiences. I don't see that at Galatia, maybe in Stoicheia. I don't see that in Rome at all, from what I can tell. Uh, but I do think that that was uh, a dimension of what happened with Paul. And I think Paul's fundamental struggle was his message to include Gentiles with having, without having to obey the Torah, uh, so in other words, without having to become full-blown proselytes or even God-fearers in that sense, uh, 
got him in trouble in every mission community that he or his agents like uh, Epaphras established. So I see him as Halakhic mystics. Yeah, and um, so the mystics part would be, like you say, maybe the part that seems to go beyond what we see, at least um, clearly in Galatia, although it may be there too, as you mentioned in the Stoicheia references. Um, but um, one of the things that's interesting is the phrase, you know, the worship of angels uh, that Paul mentions that's associated with them. And this was something that traditionally scholarship understood to be um, people uh, worshiping angels, you know, that they were the objects of worship. Uh, and that's why it was called the Colossian heresy. But scholarship has moved somewhere else on this um, in general uh, due to the Dead Sea Scrolls. And, um, yeah, what, what's the difference now? With how this well, is understood. Well, uh, when we say the scholarship has moved, uh, some have. Uh, yes, some yes. have, and and some people think the freshest <laughs> idea is going to be the best idea. But yeah, I was falling into the danger of just uh, of using that consensus language. Yeah, I suppose <laughs> uh, I would say that um, that there is a there is a, there is evidence for a construction that sees that they're almost joining angels. In, in their worshipful experiences and have become angel-like in their religious experience. So there's a movement in that direction. Rather than simply worshiping angels as gods, uh, that, that's, that's the shift that I think that there's evidence for. Yeah, some, and some of that's supported by some of the Dead Sea Scrolls yeah. material, where they, the, some of the members of the Qumran community clearly had an, uh, an interest in angelic liturgies and angelic worship, and um, somehow seeing themselves as participants in it. Um, yeah, so yeah, so that's that's an interesting place where you know comparative research has has done some um, some good work for us, maybe in in clarifying what was going on at Colossae. Um, all right, well. Uh, one of the other issues that we could touch on, and um, maybe we just need to do it uh, briefly as time is running along, but obviously the, the question of authorship is a major issue that's still discussed. I thought you had um, some interesting new things to say on the on the authorship um, of uh, Colossians. Of course, the debate is whether Paul wrote it or Paul didn't write it, but I think you don't really like the, the, the whole methodological basis around which this conversation has been conducted um, of kind of um, you know dealing with an authentic Paul versus an inauthentic Paul. What's your method, 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 method your, your point of method that you're wanting to bring out? I couldn't get that word out. I want to uh, I want to know if you agree with me first, so that I can uh, so I know if I'm walking into a minefield here. Um, I do, I do agree with you. Right. Here's what I would say: the logic, uh, and I began to work on this logic on authorship way back in the late '80s when, for some odd reason, no one at Trinity wanted to teach. Uh, the uh, authorship of the pastoral epistles course on uh, it was called criticism of the epistles i did criticism of the gospels and loved it but no one wanted to teach criticism of the epistles so i took it on if and i asked for permission from uh, doug moo the department chair if i could just focus on the pastorals so i began to pay attention to the logic here's the logic that is used in authorship questions about paul it starts like this. We know Paul wrote Romans, 1st and 2nd Corinthians, Galatians, probably Philemon, 1st Corinthians, 2nd Corinthians. So maybe 1st Thessalonians. So there's debates, okay? So, so we know that Paul wrote those letters. And therefore we can map his grammar, his syntax, 
his habits of thought, his theology, and his favorite uh, set of terms. And therefore, we, uh, on that basis, we build this data bank, and then we compare it to Colossians, Ephesians, the pastoral epistles, and we say, well, since it is clear that Paul wrote these other letters, then he didn't write these letters because these, these, this vocabulary has changed, the syntax is different. So it starts with an assumption that Paul wrote Romans, etc. And I'd, I am unconvinced that Paul wrote any of his letters. Um, he, he obviously picks up pen at the end of some of his letters, say Philemon, and signs off. And so he, he had not been writing them in advance. Nor am I convinced that Paul dictated his letters in one setting. Um, I think Randy Richards and other people who have examined this demonstrate that these letters were probably produced in conversation with almost like a committee, a committee of Paul's friends sitting around discussing, yes, yeah, say this, and someone says, no, that's not the way to say it. Say it this way. And uh, it produced drafts, and then the drafts were read, and then only after a couple drafts or some revisions was the final draft put out. So I'm convinced that Paul's conversation partners, which often I think was Timothy, but included other people in different settings in different locations, I'm convinced that they had significant impact on the letter. This is not the same as the amanuensis theory that Paul gave uh, his secretary or his amanuensis freedom to. Paul said, this is what I want to say. Would you write a paragraph for me? I think that, uh, and I don't think Paul's dictating the way E.P. Sanders did. I was very disappointed in his new big fat book on Paul that, uh, that he said Paul dictated. And he, it's like Sanders, uh, uh, just to say this is the way it happened and deal with it. Um, and I've always liked the directness and clarity of his prose. But I don't think Paul wrote his letters. I don't think he dictated his letters. I think that his letters were produced in conjunction with discussions of others and that someone drafted them up and then Paul and his buddies um, revised and edited and then produced a fair copy and sent it off and probably several copies. So therefore, I don't think it is legitimate to say we know Paul's language and style from Romans and therefore Colossians doesn't fit. Because all I would say is, Paul didn't write Romans. That might reflect Tertius. That might reflect um, someone else. And Colossians might reflect Epaphras. It might reflect Tychicus. So in other words, it, it might have other people contributing that edited and clarified and said, no, this is the language we need to be using at Colossae. So Paul had to learn to adjust his language at Colossae. Uh, so I just want to say, uh, I don't think we know as much about the genuine Pauline letters in that, in that old-fashioned sense as we think we do to use as a fulcrum of comparison to the letters that are disputed. I would want to say, and I like to say it this way, I'm not sure this gets me that farther ahead, but I think it's pretty clever. Uh, since Paul did not write any of them, he wrote all of them. Um, and that is, uh, I think he's behind all the letters that bear his name 
and I don't think that he uh, dictated or wrote any of them, but that they reflect different groups of people with whom he was ministering at the time. Yeah. Yeah, I think uh, I think Randy Richards' work is extremely important there on on Paul and first century letter writing, and um, he he leads through uh, the reader through a lot of sources that show what letter writing processes look like yes. from in, ancient evidence, yeah. uh, and uh, I, I find it convincing as well that uh, that the process looked more or less like you describe it. I was I, I was also, disappointed that Doug Moo just I think just kind of dismisses Randy Richards' work, and I think ah. Uh, that stuff from Cicero and all those letter-writing uh, pieces of evidence, that's got to be considered more significantly. So, yeah, I'm, I'm with you. The one thing that I have, uh, uh, I tend to think that the letter courier performed the letter, and Peter Head has called that into question. And um, that's something that, if I have time, um, I may reinvestigate that one. But I do think the letters of Paul were performed. I think it's, I think it's uh, you know, the, our evidence is not absolutely clear, but I, I think it's likely that the letter courier also answered all the questions. I think the chance that, that they performed the letter or read it publicly in a way that was compelling rather than just the way some people read on Sunday mornings uh, is mm-hmm. highly likely. But I, I, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm willing mm-hmm. to uh, reexamine that one. Hmm. Yeah, I, I'm, I haven't gotten wrapped up into that debate about performance and the degree to which it was performed at all. So that interests me. I'll have to check out Peter's work, uh, as he certainly knows uh, a lot about such things. Uh, so yeah, Peter had is someone you, you definitely want to take seriously. Um, well, let's let's do a uh, let's do a second speed round here, and then I got a couple wrap up questions for okay. you. Are you ready? Yes. Okay. So, uh, do you like to go camping? No. No. Okay. I like hotels. I like hotels. Okay. Okay. Uh, if, if if we were going to lunch together and I pulled up in a Porsche, would you be envious or secretly judge me? I would be very surprised that a New Testament scholar would be driving a Porsche. <laughs> yeah, it's not like yeah, this is fiction. I mean, there's there's no there's no chance this is going to happen to me. Uh, I sure. fear that I may uh, judge you. Uh, I, I mean, yeah. I'm. I'm uh, I would say it's cool, but I would wonder uh, why yeah, anyone would spend yeah. that much money on a car. <laughs> yeah, I have to admit I'd probably judge myself. I hate to say it, you know, but um, I probably would. Um, all right, Scott, here's the hardest one. Are you willing to sing a song for me right now on the spot? No. no? Okay, well, I, it's easy for you. Um, I would love, uh, uh, if I could sing, I would sing something by ABBA because oh. we just watched the movie Mamma well, Mia. come on, come on. I, I can't sing. Sing, sing some ABBA I, for I, us. I can't come sing. On. I mean, my voice, as Martin Luther, the you know, way back, said, um, my voice is ugly. <laughs> Occasionally, I hit a note and then I hang on because it sounds right. Oh, come on, just a couple bars of Amazing Grace for us, Scott. Come on. <laughs> Ain't gonna happen. <laughs> the, the scariest thing, Scott, about growing older is? Uh, memory. And it's, it's not so scary. It's real. Uh, I noticed it in my 50s, you know. You begin, um, and th- this is not, you know, this is not something that causes me great anxiety. I mean, I don't think I've got Alzheimer's or anything, and so I don't sit around worrying about it. But I used to know... I'd have a class of 60, and the second time we met, I knew every student's name in the class. In my 50s, in my I'd say it's about my mid-50s, 
I'd come back after Christmas and I couldn't remember some names of students I had the previous semester. And I just thought, well, that is weird. Well, over time, uh, I realized, I've talked to my medical doctor. He said, well, uh, what happens um, is, he says, for professors who have good memories like you, is that your your memory's starting to be normal. So, <laughs> so I, uh, uh, that, that's, that's one that, you know, when I, when I first started teaching at Northern six years ago, I'd start a class, and because I'd taught college students for 17 years, old names that I used when I was teaching at Trinity way back in the 80s and early 90s, names of scholars. I remember one day in class being stumped. I couldn't remember um, Borncom, Bart, and Held. Uh, I knew the book, and I just couldn't come up with the names because I hadn't used them in 17 to 20 years. Um, so, I, you know, I began to realize it there. But then those names started coming back, and I'm doing fine now. It's just, it's just the student who introduced himself to me yesterday. I can't remember his name today. Uh, I hear you. I hear you. All right. If you were offered a free space flight to the moon and back, would you do it? No. 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 Not interested in that kind of thing. All right, and if I'm going to have you over at my house for dinner, what's the one thing you're hoping that I do not serve you? Liver. Liver. Yeah, that's classic. <laughs> that's classic. Okay, Scott, well, we're, we're running out of time, yeah. so let's uh, let's hear uh, one, one more thing from you here then. Uh, what do you think the church most desperately needs to learn from the letter to the Colossians, and then what can we take to get there? What do we need to learn, and what practical steps can we, we take to get the church to this place? Um. In the United States, the evangelical church needs to know that Jesus is the cosmic ruler, that we don't need to panic because Donald Trump is the president or Barack Obama is the president, that Jesus is Lord, and that this conviction and reality needs to shape everything we do so that we can be confident that uh, our Lord is the world's true Lord and that we need to live with him as our Lord rather than with Fox News or CNN as our Lord. How then do we get to this place where Jesus is the Lord? I think it's going to take habits of mind and verbal repetitions in our church, in our liturgy, uh, and constant um, reminding of one another. I don't mean chiding or criticizing or carping at one another, but reminding ourselves that Jesus is Lord. And I occasionally did this, in fact, I did it more than occasionally during the election year, is I would say, Jesus is Lord. And people go, yeah, I got to keep that in mind. The next thing you know, they were just obsessed with whether Donald Trump was going to become the president or whether Hillary Clinton was going to become the president, I'd say Jesus is Lord. We need to start on that basis. So uh, I would say those are the practices. Our prayer life, our mental habits need to be moved in that direction on a habitual basis. Beautifully said. Thanks, Scott. 
Yeah, and thanks in general for your, your friendship, the conversation today. And I want to just let everyone know these are tremendous commentaries. They're a real gift to pastors and scholars alike. Uh, and if anyone out there, if you haven't purchased them yet, definitely would encourage you to get a, a, a pick up your copies. Uh, like maybe immediately, do it right now. Uh, if you're listening to On Script as you commute, you know, pull right off the road, you know, safely. Uh, and uh, use some of that mobile data to connect to your local bookstore uh, or to Amazon or wherever you like to buy books. Uh, you can even purchase it through our On Script website if you like and we get a kickback uh, to help our podcast keep running this is matthew bates for on script and i've been talking with scott mcknight about his two recent commentaries the letter to philemon and the letter to colossians published by erdman's and the new international commentary on the new testament series there is a link on the website on script.study thanks everyone you've been listening to on script delectable conversations on scripture and theology If this episode has brought you inner peace or lit your biblical fire, please consider a small donation of just two or five dollars per month. Information on how to donate can be found at onscript.study/donate.